Get Heard with Ian Roth podcast, where it is our mission to enable leaders to effectively engage and motivate their audience through written and verbal communication. Hey, everybody, this is Ian from the Get Heard podcast. Really excited to have my guest, Eric Roberts, on the show. Eric, thank you so much for hopping on a podcast with me tonight. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, you know, I appreciate you asking me to record an episode here. Absolutely. And, you know, I just want to, I know you're a fellow veteran, so I want to thank you for your service. It is not in vain. And, you know, only 1% of the country is willing to stand up and do that stuff. So from one veteran to another, man, thank you for everything you've done for this country. I greatly appreciate it. I, I appreciate that support. And, you know, honestly, it's, it's been my honor. I've, I've loved every minute of it. If you'd be so kind, Eric, could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, where you're from, a little bit of your previous work history, what you got going on now, and some of the special projects or things you're doing you're super excited about? Uh, yeah, I could give you a little background. So, you know, I, I joined the Army about uh, about 15 years ago, and I enlisted as an Army intelligence analyst, did that for a short while, ended up going to Warrant Officer Candidate School, then to Flight School. I flew Kiowa Warriors for uh, a bunch of years, and then the Kiowa program was phased out, and then I left active duty Army and started to pursue a graduate degree in human factor psychology at the University of South Dakota. Dakota. And simultaneously, I had joined the North Dakota National Guard at the time, and I was flying Blackhawks for them. And then, you know, after I kind of wrapped up the coursework for my PhD, I then was like, okay, well, it's time to go get a job. And I ended up jumping into, well, it started out as an operation, senior operations analyst for an energy tech company. And then basically day one, when I started, I was made a manager. And shortly after that, I was uh, made a director. And then uh, for the projects, uh, so I have a few kind of uh, passion projects right now. I'm, I'm working on my own podcast, uh, which is kind of based on a blog that I have called Interhuman. The podcast is so, named the same thing. And I've been recording some episodes. We haven't uh, published any yet because we're kind of trying to build up a nice backlog of them. And then, you know, a, a big passion hobby of mine is real estate investing. So I, I am always, you know, out there hunting for the deals. Awesome. Real estate's a lot of fun. I think I read somewhere that you did some drone flying. Is that correct? Oh yeah. You know, actually that's kind of what got me into flying. I, I always tell people I, I have more hours flying what we call drones now, you know, I always consider them radio controlled aircraft, but I have more fl hours flying those than I have in a, you know, manned aircraft, probably like three times as many. I've, I've put put in a lot of time with uh, the drones. Are you, are you currently flying any DJI or other consumer ones right now? Yeah, I, I have a couple of consumer rotary, uh, you know, multi-rotor platforms, um, but I, I don't actually have any DG, DJI stuff. Uh, I have flown DJI. I actually was, uh, when I was at the University of South Dakota, I kind of built their drone program from the ground up, as in for uh, their marketing 
strategy. And so I'm taking pictures of the campus and also events and things like that, shooting video and things. And I kind of had to write their entire safety policy for drones. That was right around the time that the FAA was kind of getting strict on things. So yeah, I, I did that for them for a while. And I've done a little bit of side work where, you know, I'll shoot like real estate and things like that. But, uh, you know, I generally try to keep it more as a fun hobby. Oh, that's awesome. I, uh, I'm actually a part 107 pilot, been flying drones for, I don't know, three or four years, like my favorite and only hobby besides podcasting. So it's super, super pumped to find another guy who is into flying drones as much as I am. That's awesome. Oh yeah, it's it's a great time, and you know I do a lot of uh, the first person view flying. So you know I'm wearing like a headset and looking through the first person view camera. So that that gives me my fix whenever I'm not able to step into a manned aircraft. That is next on my list to do. That's like taking it to the next level, but that looks so freaking cool. Yeah, it's it's a blast. All right, well I could talk about drones for forty five minutes. <laughs> oh easily. yeah, me too. <laughs> Let's get back to the task at hand. So you are interested in psychology, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, right now I'm wrapping up my dissertation for my PhD in human factor psychology. And, you know, I would say that what really got me interested in the field in general was things that I saw, you know, while being in the army, especially upon transferring over to aviation and just seeing the influences that played into safety and mission success and, you know, having a, a cockpit that's not only built around the human, but then also human interactions while you're flying, because there's a lot of things going on. And it's a really a dangerous activity. And, you know, and so I just was immensely interested in learning more about it. And so then while I was, uh, after I finished flight school, I ended up going and getting a master's in organizational psychology. And I really enjoyed it, but I wanted to press it even further. And so then when I left active duty, I went and pursued a PhD. Well, it's a master's in route because you, you have to do a master's, but a master's and then a PhD in human factor psychology at the University of South Dakota. No, that's awesome. And studying humans and, you know, human interaction and with this podcast being specifically kind of tuned to the leadership and then communication as leaders, what are some of the things that you've seen, for instance, with public speaking and the psychology of how people deal with and relate to that? Yeah, so there, there's a few actually interesting psychological influences in public speaking that I think are probably important to hit on. And, and some of them you, you hear pretty frequently and then maybe some less so. But uh, one of the biggest things is anxiety, right? Uh, anytime that you're put on the spot or even if you have a planned speech, you're probably going to be hit with some anxiety. I'm guessing you've experienced this. Oh, absolutely. I went from being, you know, I was never so nervous that like I'd lock up or couldn't talk, but I would, you know, get the pit stains going on, sweaty, nervous, shaky, voice crackling, crackling. And yeah, absolutely. Like you said. Yeah. So something, you know, to keep in mind with that anxiety is that you're, you're always going to experience it. You know, we we might get to be a little more used to it 
However, there's never going to be a time where you're not going to be hit with that anxiety, but there's really kind of a workaround for that. And that is converting that anxiety to excitement because physiologically it's actually the same type of response. And so you're, you're going to have that response occur. It's just a matter of how you funnel that and you kind of have a, a path to make a decision on, are you going to let this make you feel scared or are you going to let it build your excitement? And you can actually use it as a, a great tool to, you know, to become interested in the topic and make others interested in the topic if you can convince yourself that the reason you're feeling this anxiety is actually you're just so excited to talk about the topic. I, I think you're right on there. A lot of people would say if you're if you're not nervous about doing something, especially public speaking in this case, maybe if you're not nervous, you might not care as much as you should. So if you are nervous, I think it's a great idea to channel that energy and make yourself excited about it. And, you know, I kind of play a little like kind of game with myself. Every time I get in front of a group of people, I want to just make sure that I don't make the same mistakes I did last time. I just try to, I try to best my performance the last time I was in front of a group of people. Like the, uh, when I'm in front of my company, I like maybe I'll remember something stupid I said or something I said the previous time that was confusing or didn't come out the way I wanted it to. So I kind of get excited for the challenge to look better and communicate more clearly than the last time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a, a fair bit of research on this topic. A good actually article to take a look at is from uh, Allison Wood Brooks. She's a researcher at Harvard University and it's called Get Excited, Reappraising Pre-Performance Anxiety as Excitement. And really it's just the exact same thing I'm talking about where you are reframing, relabeling that anxiety as excitement and it's it's truly effective. You're able to shift those feelings and and then you know, kind of outperform how you would if you just settle into anxiety. What are some, are there any maybe techniques that you've seen or studied besides the, you know, getting yourself excited for the speaking event or being in front of people? Are there any techniques you've seen to help people cope with the stress and the anxiety that, that comes up? During this yeah, time. actually, this is going to lead me into uh, the next factor I was going to discuss, which is uh, visualization or self-suggestion, auto-suggestion, any of those things, you know, can all be called similarly. But uh, self-suggestion has been observed and studied for years. And it's, you know, some of the most successful individuals credit their success to this technique is just telling yourself uh, this is how it's going to play out and visualizing that and you're you're simulating it within your mind how the outcome is going to be and how you're going to do a great job and everybody's going to be pleased with you you know uh, you probably heard the quote from Henry Ford whether you think you can or you can't you're right and it's really just true I mean this has been studied quite a bit and it's uh, it's kind of like a placebo effect but it really does work where you're able to just visualize something happening and you're able to make that outcome occur. Whereas if you focus on negative thoughts and thinking, oh, I'm going to do poorly or I'm going to stutter a bunch, I'm going to say um a lot, you know, those things are going to happen because you kind of create this self-fulfilling prophecy for yourself. Yeah, those are excellent points. Just going through it in your head and 
I found for me actually speaking the things out loud, forcing myself to communicate my thoughts into words so that I've, when I'm in front of people, it's not the first time that I'm going through that process. It kind of flows a little more easily. Yeah. You, you also bring up a good point there too, which is speaking it out loud. So for auto suggestion to be most effective, you should actually write it out and then you should speak it to yourself, you know, as if you're, you're telling yourself that not just thinking it, thinking it does help. That's helpful. However, if you want to get the greatest effect, you want to write it down and you also want to speak it to yourself as well. So is there some sort of psychological aspect for, uh, like you said, writing it down, which then you're not only engaging just your, your brain, like that, that kind of sense, but then you're writing it down, you're seeing the words visually and engaging your another sense your vision sense does that help things sink in or is that is that true or am i crazy no it is true you you know you're you're reinforcing connections uh you're building neural pathways and when you are able to kind of hit it at multiple levels so you know telling yourself that telling yourself um you're gonna do great like whether it's in your mind just thinking it and then speaking it to yourself and then also writing it down you're just reinforcing that behavior and ensuring that it you're gonna have a more likely outcome in that way that you're thinking about and that was called uh what what method was that called? Yeah, so it goes by a few different names. So, you know, visualization or auto-suggestion and self-suggestion. Yeah, those are some of the most common terminology for it. You said there was audio visualization or that one, and then I think I thought you said there were two. Oh no, well so visualization is kind of separate from self-suggestion. You know, self-suggestions where yeah, you're you're telling yourself something and then the visualization is where you're you're kind of mentally simulating thinking through the process of how it's going to go. So like say if you're gearing up for a speech. You know, you're going to practice multiple times, hopefully, you know, if this is an important speech, but then think through the speech and visualize yourself there making the speech at, in the environment and visualize you hitting on those key points, uh, hitting on those kind of emotional points where you want to see a response to, from the crowd, visualize how the crowd is going to look, you know, visualize the jokes that you're going to tell and how they're going to land with the crowd, that kind of thing. I think visualization is extremely important for all those reasons you said. And I, I think it it gives you a lot more confidence, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, because if it's shocking, but, you know, through visualization, it, it in a way is uh, teleporting you there. And that's kind of one of the big areas where my research is, is telepresence, presence and things like that. But um, you're able to put yourself in a place, uh, you know, let's call it an 80% solution. You know, you're able to have already mapped out 80% of what it's going to go like. So it's not all just a big mystery when you show up there and make the speech. Confidence is absolutely huge. And those are phenomenal ways to build confidence for you listeners out there looking to become better public speakers. I mean, how many times have you seen someone on stage who has absolutely no idea what he's talking about or is a complete buffoon, but darn it, he is confident and charismatic and you almost want to believe the guy. I mean, I think we all know people. Oh, like that. absolutely. And, you know, that that's it's unfortunate, too, on the other side of things where you can have somebody that knows the subject matter perfectly, but they just are not a very good public speaker. They're, you know, 
not confident in themselves at all, and they're just not able to effectively communicate the message. That's right. And I, that's why I think it is so important because you can be the smartest person in the world with the most up-to-date relevant information, but exactly like you said, Eric, if you are doing a poor job at putting out that information or you do so from a, from a weak perspective or a perspective with no self-confidence, people are not going to take you seriously or may not even believe the information that you're putting out. Right. Right. And and it's, you know, it's really unfortunate because yeah, like you said, you see those situations where you, you have a speaker who they don't really know what they're talking about, but man, they are just a terribly charismatic person. They have great jokes that they land all the time and you kind of just get sucked in and listen to what they say. And, you know, this kind of ties into the whole auto suggestion thing. And well, it also works when you're getting suggestion from outside sources. So you are going to be more inclined to believe that because you're hearing it from them and it seems compelling. Yeah, absolutely. So again, listeners, it is super important that you're able to communicate clearly, effectively, and with confidence. If you you guys take nothing else away from my podcast, I I am telling you, being confident in yourself and who you are is a huge, huge deal, not only as a leader, but just as a public speaker, as a public speaker, even if there's no leadership going on at the moment, it's just extremely important. Yeah. Uh, And then, you know, another thing that I was going to bring up is uh, the term memory palace or method of Loki. You've probably heard of these. I think that they're they're pretty well known. Uh, You know, it's existed for thousands of years now. But in, in case any of the listeners aren't aware of this. It's basically a cognitive psychology approach uh, of adhering uh, short-term working memory objects, such as, you know, the topics of your speech. Uh, You're going to adhere those to a long-term memory object. And in this case, you typically are going to focus on uh, a location that you know very well, like your home. Or, you know, you could even get more specific with your bedroom and you, uh, you you do this technique where you are imagining you're walking around, say, your bedroom and you're going to attach points of your speech to points in your bedroom in the order that you would actually, like, say, navigate through the space. Okay, that makes – I think I'm following you. Can you go into – a little more detail explaining that was some some hardcore psychology stuff yeah absolutely so in this case the the complex issue of like say setting up your speech and remembering all the points is that you're trying to commit all of these items to memory that don't really have a hard attachment right but we are very good as humans we are very good at taking a a new object, a new thing to memorize, such as, you know, a very a specific topic that you want to hit in your speech, and then connecting it with something that you know really well, that you really don't have to think about, you just inherently know it. And when you go back and you re-remember, like an example would be that uh, if you imagine waking up to your alarm in your bed, And then you're going to attach that sound of your alarm to the first point of your speech. So then you're hitting on your auditory sense 
and you're going to attach it to the first point of your speech. So let's say you're you're going to give a speech about um, the direct mail marketing numbers that you hit on for this quarter, and you want to make sure that you hit a few key points. Well, what you want to do is you want to remember that sound of your alarm with those points at the same, not at the same time, but essentially attaching it to it. So think of your alarm and then think of those points that you want to hit. Then you go to the next thing, which in this case could be you turning off that alarm. And then you're going to think of another sense, which is the feel of turning off that alarm. For example, uh, I use my phone for my alarm. So it has a very specific haptic response when I touch that. Uh, you know, It's not really a button. It's on the screen. But when you touch it, you get a little haptic response from that. And so then I'm going to think about how that's going to feel when I touch that. And then I'm going to mentally attach that to the next few points or sing singular point within my speech. And you just continue to do this process and you can do, you can keep going as far as you need to go. But yeah, this technique has existed for thousands of years and people use it for memorizing literally hundreds of thousands of items. That, that is absolutely crazy to me. I've never heard of that in my life. And yeah, <laughs> wow. I'll have to try that. That's, I mean, that's a pretty creative way to, make sure that you say everything you want to say and, you know, helps you kind of plan through a sequence of hitting points and making sure you're not missing anything. Right, right. And that's, that's the purpose of it is you can remember the order of everything you want to hit. And as long as you just keep attaching it to things that you know very well, it kind of, uh, it links them, it bonds them. And it's easier to memorize things, you know, in specific orders that way. And then you know, after, after you give the speech, you're going to stop going through that process, of course. And then you'll basically flush all that information pretty quick. Just like cramming for a final exam. I just cram it in there and then I take the exam and I forget. Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, yes. And no, uh, you know, you don't want to rush yourself too much on it, but you know, you can, you can, uh, get some amazing results. I think that, uh, if you go, you can watch some YouTube videos on building a memory palace and there's a lot of experts on there that kind of teach the techniques and some of them, you know, they have these uh, records where they'll memorize the order of a deck of cards in less than a minute and they use a memory palace for it. And it's just, it's amazing. That is crazy. What is, what's a reasonable time if you're planning a speech out to to start doing this memory palace technique like a couple weeks a month or so what have you seen is about an average time to be successful with it so you know it's probably less tied to the amount of time that you're going to necessarily prepare for the specific speech but more built about just effectively learning how to to create a memory palace. And so once you've done that, you know, it's going to boil down to how many points that you're trying to remember. But if you become good at creating a memory palace, you know, you could get to the point of where you could basically solidify things in your memory in a few minutes. And now, you know, that's after a lot of practice. You know, if you're just starting out, you probably would want to give it at least a few days. And it's not like all day you're going to be practicing that. But, you know, a few minutes of each day, uh, practice walking through your memory palace, committing those, those things to your memory, and then you're going to just have a, a much greater chance at remembering it in the order that you want and being able to go to some pretty serious depth on those points. I think this is 
an absolutely outstanding idea for those of you out there who want to work on, even if it's not for public speaking, you know, just help with memorizing things. I mean, this is, wow, what, what a great way to associate, you know, a visual sense with then kind of putting something in your brain and triggering, triggering your brain in a certain way. That's just pretty cool, man. Psychology is cool. Yeah. The, the mind is a powerful thing <laughs> and you can do it with all your senses, And that's the best way to do it too, is if you're able to incorporate all your senses. So, you know, say you, you go further through your house and you like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to cook eggs in the morning and I know what that smells like. And then you attach something to that smell. So if you hit all of your sentence, your senses, you're just going to have a better result. That's awesome. And I wanted to make sure we hit this topic. I have this in my notes, but when you're giving a speech, it's obviously important that the speaker is making eye contact in some way, shape, or form. Are there any psychological, is there any psychological research behind perhaps maybe the the effects of eye contact or anything that you've come across? You know, I have I have not specifically researched eye contact. There there is some things that I have looked into and, and research that was conducted at my university that it kind of assisted on a little bit, but it's more about um point of gaze and how humans are terrible at judging point of gaze. So while I mean, obviously, we understand that we prefer when somebody is looking at us when they're speaking to us or we're speaking to them. And I would say that that most likely ties into our our need to be heard. You know, when we're speaking, we don't want it to be wasted and we want to ensure that the people are paying attention. So you want to make sure that they're giving you eye contact so that you're able to read their expressions. And, and it's probably tying into the micro expressions, you know, being able to read those micro expressions and understand that they're actually paying attention to what you're saying. But then the other thing that I want to hit on is people are terrible at judging a point of gaze. And so you don't have to look somebody directly in the eyes. You can look, you know, above their eyes, below their eyes, uh, typically above or below. I mean, you could go off to the side a little bit, but you get into some sketchy territory. But if you're looking slightly above or below, they're going to think you're looking them directly in the eyes and you are not. Sure, that makes sense. And I've run into that problem a couple of times. So I totally... Not, not that it's a problem. I've, I've run into that situation a couple of times and yeah, I know exactly what you mean there. What are some, what are some of the more fascinating things that you've come across in your research relating to communication in general or public speaking or, you know, written communications, if you wouldn't mind sharing some of the cool things that you found out in your research? There's just a, a lot of kind of shocking and startling things. You know, one of the biggest things that I've noticed is uh, how your some of the research that we do now is kind of driven off of things that we tend to we generally just know and accept. Um, I don't know if you've ever read How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's, in my opinion, it's a phenomenal book. But you see a lot of research going and testing these theories and they're finding out that it's right. And it's, you know, it's really, it's just that it's a, uh, it's tried and true forms that have survived the test of time. And, you know, if you, it, you don't necessarily have to go and conduct scientific research to to know that a, a factor is a factor. You know, like um, if I drop a ball, it's going to fall. Well, you know, we obviously gravity has been studied, but 
before it was ever studied, we knew that when you drop a ball, it's going to fall. And I think that a lot of the things that kind of fall into the communication domain tend to be like that. You know, they're being researched now because I would say that we're, we're getting further enough in the body of science that it's becoming of particular interest. But you know, it's just a lot of things that we we generally have observed anecdotally, and we're finally starting to back it up with science, which is an important practice. You know, it's important to go back and prove that something does exist the way that it does. And then you can take it a step further and kind of start trying to determine why. And those are those are the really interesting things, but they're also very difficult to discover. You know, psychological research is complicated. It, this is not the uh, 1900s where we can, you know, cut somebody's cranium open and start sticking probes in there and seeing what happens. So, you know, we've, we've just hit a point to where we kind of have to rest on, I would say, subjective type of research. So self-report type of data. Uh, but then, you know, we're getting a little bit further now with physiological data with like uh, near infrared spectroscopy and uh, EEG is there's some interesting stuff coming out with it. Uh, those are all pretty fascinating things. Um, besides what you've mentioned already, have you noticed or used any other good planning techniques when you're crafting what you're going to say, or even, you know, if it's an email or a letter or something along those lines, any good planning techniques that you are aware of? or have you Yeah, used? I would say, you know, in terms of planning, one of the big things that I like to do is if let, let's say it's a, a formal speech, I will actually practice the speech and record myself doing it. And I'll go back and watch for my nonverbal cues and then any verbal tics like, um, so saying and a lot, you know, or just kind of having maybe too long of a pause. However, I would say that in general, when you are, when you have a pause in your speech, you are thinking that it's probably about five times as long as it actually is. So when you when you hit a point to where you can comfortably move through your speech with selected pauses, you will find that you can start to avoid using filler words and nobody's going to notice those small little micro pauses to you. It feels like an eternity, but to them, it just feels like normal speech patterns. I wish you could see the excitement and the smile on my face right now that you said pauses, man, because I did an episode called the three P's of public speaking. And I'm not going to say what two of the three P's are, but the third P was pausing. I think it is so, so important, not only to avoid the filler words, like you said, and that's like one of the exact things that I say in that episode, but to also, it gives you time to collect your thoughts so you're not using those filler words. And pauses are just so powerful when you're in front of a group. It's just like that silence gets everybody re-engaged. Maybe if there were some eyes wandering away from when you were talking, that pause, that silence kind of makes everybody look up and look back at you to grab their attention. And then you can just, you know, have an, an extremely effective next line of your speech or what you're going to say to them. So, man, I'm so glad that you. Yeah, absolutely. Pause. You know, there, there is a lot of value in silence 
And if you, you if you learn how to use that effectively, you can bring your speeches to the next level, not just speeches, but I mean, just general conversation as well. You can you can push to a level that you just never even thought of and through effectively using those pauses and then, you know, going back and reviewing that video footage, you can really start to train out those filler words. I was lucky that when I was going through public speaking in college, my, I think it was my first semester, I ended up with a hardcore instructor who she applied the the same type of technique that they use in Toastmasters International. And I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they take a, a jar and every time you say a filler word, they drop a nail in the jar and you just you just become afraid of those nails. Like you just don't want to hear that sound. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that is an effective way. I've heard of Toastmasters. I've heard nothing but awesome things about Toastmasters. I just don't have the time to be able to do that right now, but I definitely, uh, if you guys are out there listening and have, or any Toastmasters group in your area, I would love to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly. The uh, I'm sure the nails in the jar it would be, yes, would be scary. And you say, um, or something like that, and just hear that, that clank in the jar. Yeah, I believe that's like nails on a chalkboard and just kind of want to like put my do a face palm, like, shoot, I just said, um, again, oh my goodness. But no, that's a great way. Just like watching yourself, recording yourself, either audio or with video is really a great way to keep you honest and see what you really look Yeah, like. it's, it's really important and you get a lot out of it. You're able to learn from those mistakes and then kind of translate that to future success. And so, you know, I do that from time to time is just do a recording of myself speaking, especially if there's something that I feel like I'm going to be very nervous about. I don't want to mess it up. You know, I'll record that, go back and review it, look at the areas where I felt weak on and, you know, try and improve that. Because another another thing is jokes. I don't know if you try and incorporate jokes into speaking, but it's a that's a tough deal. I mean, you know, not everybody has the same level of humor or success with trying to be humorous. And if you're trying to incorporate jokes into a speech, which is a great idea, it's very effective, but not every joke is going to land the way you anticipate. And so you have to be ready to react to it. But you can actually, through videoing it, you can kind of determine that just by watching yourself and be like, oh, wait a minute, this doesn't sound quite right. I I should tweak this and make it sound funnier. You're definitely a lot braver than I if you try to put jokes in your in your speeching uh, speaking public speeches. So I applaud you for that one. My my sense of humor is so dry and and stupid most of the time. Like I've just had so many I've had so many just absolute failures. So I'm on a hiatus from jokes in in speeches. But that's awesome if you can jokes jokes if used effectively and you can gauge your audience and and put a good joke in there to lighten the mood and get people laughing are extremely, extremely powerful. Yeah. Uh, you know, I say that the the starting point for jokes is just being self-deprecating. You know, enough that it's funny, but not so much that you look like a fool. <laughs> enough to be funny, but not too much to make yes. people feel sorry for you. Because you're just <laughs> exactly. Up. Yeah. yeah, totally. That really exhausts the list of questions that I have for you for the show today, Eric. Are there any... Anything else that you'd like to mention that we did not touch on yet? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of thought about this a little bit and I was thinking that I 
I remember uh, somebody that I felt was a, a great public speaker. Every time I saw him speak, everything he said was just incredibly thoughtful, perfect delivery. He had tons of jokes flawless delivery on the jokes. And so, you know, I, I was going to school with him at the time, but he was a, a non-traditional student. So he was actually the uh, vice president of research at the university. And he was just like, well, heck, I want to get a PhD, you know, never did it, decide I'm going to go through. And so one day after he was speaking, I, I went up and I talked to him. I was like, hey, you know, at what point did you get over the anxiety? And he said, are you kidding? I'm, I'm anxious every single time I'm up there. And I was just shocked because when I watched him, he seemed so comfortable. It was like he was having a conversation with his brother or something. I just never had seen anybody feel so comfortable being in front of a giant crowd. I mean, he would be giving speeches to hundreds of people and just never skipped a beat. And I thought for sure that he had somehow conquered the anxiety. And I mean, the reality of it was it's it's still there. He had just found techniques to deal with it and accept that that's going to be part of the process. That's a great point. No matter how many times you do it and you can seem like an absolute professional and do everything and deliver everything extremely smoothly, but you're still going to have that anxiety, that worry and stress, but it's all about in how you yeah. deal with it is what really makes you the effective. Yeah, great communicator. absolutely. Uh, and then a, a last point that I want to hit on and I think that I've I've been, you know, a victim of this myself and I've seen it plenty of times, but don't try to memorize every word of a speech. It never goes well. You, you're going to sound rehearsed and robotic and you really want your speech to be fluid and you want to have latitude to be able to move from word to word. You know, you don't want to be kind of tied down to a very specific algorithm of at this point, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to say this, you know, you want those key points, but don't try and completely memorize a speech word for word. In fact, I would say that you're doing yourself a disservice. If you write out a speech and then try and read it verbatim, you will find that you sound like a robot. You'll sound like a robot and it really takes away that aspect where you can gauge your audience and and speak and kind of just tweak a little bit to the left or right what you're saying, depending on the reactions you're getting from them or or how you can sense that they're feeling. So yeah, I agree with you. Most of the time memorizing is is a terrible thing to do. So, you know, you just you get down your your key points and then leave yourself some room, like you said, to to gauge that audience. Uh, you know, lots of times in the middle of a speech, like I might have some things that I wanna I'm a, I'm a big practitioner of this, just calling people out, not, not in a way that they're going to look bad. Uh, but I just, you know, make sure they're paying attention. And then I'll ask them, say a question that I know they know the answer to for sure. And I generally know how they'll answer it. I love incorporating that into a speech. And it's funny too, because I've, I've had people come and ask me like, Oh, did you plant shills in the audience there? Because they, they answered the questions, you know, exactly in the way that you it looked like you expected. And I was like, well, no, I just thought through exactly how I thought they would answer the question and then worked off of that. Yeah, that's a great idea. If you're able to do that, kind of just call people out to make sure that they're and they're there with you, you know, not, not only physically, obviously, but mentally and are, and are listening and aware of what you're saying. That's a great technique in the military. We like to do that in an embarrassing <laughs> way, but in, in your example, like you said, you don't do it in an embarrassing way. Uh, usually, 
in my work, it'll be somebody sure. sleeping or something like that. And you, uh, you quickly bring it to their attention and to the group's attention that they are not paying attention and uh, they, yes, they don't uh, fall asleep again for a while. People will not appreciate you if you're doing that in the civilian world. So, uh, you know, and, yes, and that was something absolutely. that I would brief kind of to my students on day one of class is, hey, I'm going to call on you and I, I'm not going to call or I'm not going to ask for volunteers. I'm go, you're going to be voluntold. I'm going to call on you. So just make sure you're always paying attention, be ready to give an answer and don't be afraid to be wrong because there's going to be times where you're wrong. There's going to be times where I'm wrong. You know, we're figuring this out together. So just, you know, give your best answer. And if it's not right, that's perfectly okay. We're going to work through why it's not. And then we're going to get to the right answer together. Right. I can teach you the information. I can, you know, I can do that for you. I can't make you really pay attention or, or, or make you be engaged. That's kind of an on, on you as an individual to do. So yeah, if you're there, I just ask you that you, you care a little bit and that you're engaged. And I'm sure in a classroom setting that just goes oh, a long way. Well, that ties up everything I wanted to touch upon for this episode, Eric. Thank you again so much for being on the show. Where can listeners find you check you out I, I heard you mention a blog and a podcast you're going to be releasing soon yeah yeah thank you uh the so the blog is called inner human and it's focused on applied psychology and you can find that at innerhuman.net and then the podcast which will be shortly launching uh, it'll also be called inner human and you know that'll be located at wherever you find your podcasts Outstanding. Everybody check Eric out on innerhuman.net and then his podcast, Innerhuman, on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. So again, Eric, thank you so much for hopping on this episode today. You put out a lot of great stuff, I think, are going to make people more effective communicators and public speakers. Public speakers. And again, thanks again, man, for coming on the show. Absolutely. I really appreciate you having me on and uh, having this conversation. So if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I'm also available at getheardpodcast.com and my brand new email for this podcast is up and that is ian, I-A-N, at getheardpodcast.com. Again, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you later.